Over the last two weeks, we've been exploring Romans chapter 9. And we've seen Paul lament for his own people of Israel because many of them are not turning to Jesus as Lord. But instead, it seems like the Gentiles are turning to Jesus in droves. And this is a little bit confusing and, and somewhat surprising for Paul and his audience. But Paul's been reminding them that in God's sovereign plans, he has always chosen to show mercy and to harden hearts to bring about his good and perfect plans. And as humans, as creatures, we don't always have insight into what God is doing in his plans and purposes and how he brings about his promises. But Paul says, we can trust that what God is doing is good and right. But in today's passage, Paul explains that there are also some heart reasons, some religious and cultural reasons why many Israelites have missed their Messiah, Jesus. And in the midst of this passage are some truly incredible statements some life-changing, gracious and astounding words that hit at the very heart of the gospel. And so my prayer today is that we might be struck again by the startling mercy of God. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your character of who you are, that even when we are stuck, when we are incapable of saving ourselves, we can throw ourselves upon your love and mercy. And Lord, may we do that in response to your word today. May you teach us, may you reveal to us a, a little bit more of who you are. Amen. Have you ever had that experience where you've been searching for something or pursuing something and you've worked really hard to find this thing or achieve the goal you're, you're, you're pursuing. And then someone walks up or shows up who finds the thing that you've been looking for or achieves the goal you've been working for with seeming ease. It happens for me when I'm searching for missing socks. And this happens time and time again. I'll be searching through drawers and piles and baskets for a missing sock. I'll check the same places over and over again with no luck. And hearing my cries of frustration, Emma will walk in and look in the exact place that I've been searching for the last 15 minutes and find the sit sock sitting there within seconds. And I don't understand why this happens time and time again. Or maybe you've had that experience of setting yourself a goal to run five kilometres. You spend months building up your fitness to achieve that goal and then you're having a chat with a friend one morning who casually mentions they went for an easy 15 kilometre jog that morning. You feel demoralised. Or if you've been to a theme park and queued up to wait for the fastest and, and most exciting roller coaster ride. You've been waiting for hours and the line is barely moving. Then these people wander past you 
right in f to the front of the queue, escorted by security guards, and hop straight onto the ride because they have VIP passes. It seems unfair, doesn't it? Today's passage describes a similar situation, but there's much more at stake than a roller coaster ride or a missing sock. Paul describes how Israel has been on a search or a pursuit for centuries. The pursuit of something that we translate as righteousness. And boy, have they worked hard to achieve it. Tirelessly trying to follow the rules of the law. Endlessly offering sacrifices to atone for their sin. Zealously holding one another to account. And yet, Paul says, here are the Gentiles casually walking to the front of the queue. Here are the Gentiles stumbling upon the missing sock within seconds. Here are the Gentiles casually achieving Israel's goal with no effort whatsoever. So today's passage is about the pursuit of righteousness. But what is righteousness? It's a word we use an awful lot and hear a lot. But how would you explain what righteousness is to someone? There's quite a lot of debate about this word and how it's used in the Bible. But the word for righteousness here was a common word used in Greek society. For people who didn't follow Jesus, the word righteousness was about living rightly or living up to a certain standard. Righteousness was an attribute or characteristic of a person who had attained that standard. But of course, that begged the question, what standard are we to live up to? Who sets that standard? In our society, uh, many would say that the, the standard that we are to live up to is to be a good person. And what we mean by that is to be a little bit better than the people around us. We often define the standards of righteousness by glancing sideways and looking to the people around us, by comparing ourselves to one another. And I suspect this was quite similar for the Greek people. But Paul takes this concept and says, actually, the standard of right living, you can't work that out by comparing yourself to other people. The standard for right living can only be worked out by understanding, by hearing from, by learning from the one who created life in the first place. The standard of right living, the standard of righteousness is God's holiness because he is the one true holy perfect one who we are all in relationship with, whether we recognise it or not. He's the one who sets the standard of how life is meant to be lived because he is our creator and he lovingly gives us life and shows us what goodness even means. Another way of thinking about righteousness is to think of it as a natural response that a child might have to their parents. When children are born, there is a natural, deep, unspoken bond that is formed between them and their parents. 
It's an unspoken covenant of sorts. And a child expresses their part of that bond as they honour and listen and live in accordance with their parents' loving wishes for them. When they do that, we could say that that child is living in relational righteousness to their parents. And so we might think of righteousness as the natural and right response to God as our loving, life-giving Father. To be truly righteous means to act in alignment with God's ways, to walk his steps without stumbling. And honestly, that makes me want to throw my hands up in the air and say, I give up. I can't do that. Do you know what? I think that's exactly what Paul wants us to do. And all of this, this description of what righteousness is, all of this makes Paul's words at the end of chapter 9 quite incredible. He says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. This is a shocking statement, a statement that would create a rift between Paul and his own people. Because Paul is saying that the Gentiles have been declared as fulfilling their end of their covenant relationship with God. They've fulfilled the human end of their bond with God without even trying. That's what Paul's saying. But meanwhile, the people of Israel who have strived tirelessly to live according to God's standards by following the law, they've fallen short. And Paul explains why this is. He says it's because Israel has been pursuing righteousness in the wrong way. They've been searching in the wrong place. They've been pursuing righteousness by the law but righteousness can only come as a gift by faith. And so there are two different ways that one can pursue righteousness. Two different ways that we can try to honour our life-giving Father. And, and this has always been true. Even in the Old Testament you see this. That's what verses 5 to 8 are about. The the first way is to try by our own efforts to live a life that is in perfect alignment with God's ways. This is the way of the law. This way falsely says, actually, it is possible for us as humans to live up to God's standards. You can do it on your own, in your own strength. I can do it in my own strength. The way of the law relies upon human strength and human goodness. The second way is to say, actually, I can't live up to God's holiness. And so all I can do is throw myself upon the loving mercy of God, upon his loving and merciful character.
That is the way of faith. This way says, I can't be righteous in my own strength. I need God. And so we have the way of the law that is human-centered. But the way of faith is God-centered. The way of the law relies on the weak and frail humanity. The way of faith relies on our good, merciful and sovereign God. So hopefully this all sounds well and good. The way of faith certainly sounds much better than the way of the law, but how can God actually declare me or you as being righteous? How can he say that we have fully honoured our bond with him as we should? That we walk aligned with his ways in all of life when you and I know we simply don't. Does God say we're righteous when really we're not? Is it all fake and is this a, a pretense? Is it a mask, a, a pretend mask to cover up? Is God a liar or a cheat? Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 10 are really important because they explain why God is no liar or cheat. Paul explains that the way of faith truly does make us righteous in the most remarkable way. He writes about Israel, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end or the culmination of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul is saying that God has stepped in. He's intervened and he has actually acted to fulfill human righteousness for us. Jesus, as word become flesh and as God become man, has fulfilled the human end of our covenant with God, walking in line with God's ways, fulfilling the requirements of the law. He is the one and only truly righteous human. Jesus has achieved the unachievable and pursued righteousness and chased it down. And what that means is that there now exists in this world a truly righteous type of humanity and the possibility that we can be a part of it. By faith and through the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are reborn into a new type of humanity that is characterized and marked by righteousness because it is the humanity that Jesus, the righteous one, has created. And that is why baptism is a symbol of rebirth. We are reborn into a new humanity that is in loving union with our Father, with the life-giving Father, through faith in Jesus. And so the way of faith means trusting Jesus to be our righteousness for us. He is our sock finder. He is our cue jumper. 
He is our hope and peace. Our passage began by talking about the pursuit of righteousness. But the language in the later verses are all about pursuing Jesus. Look at verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's interesting how Paul focuses on the heart and the mouth here. The heart in this passage is all that is internal. Our desires, our emotions, our intellect, our wills. And the mouth is a window into the heart. The way of faith is about directing the core of our being towards Jesus. Pursuing him with all that we are. It's not the work of our hands that saves us, but pursuing Jesus as Lord in trust, in love, and in thankfulness. I've been reading a book the last few weeks by A.W. Tozer called The Pursuit of God. It's a follow-up to his book, God's Pursuit of Man. And it's nice that they're in companionship because while we've been speaking of pursuing Jesus, the truth is that God has first pursued us. Jesus is God's relentless pursuit of you and me. And so that means that our pursuit of Jesus is not some desperate attempt to chase after something that's always just beyond reach, but more like a resting or a leaning on the one who has already found us. What a beautiful irony that the pursuit of Jesus actually looks like resting in him, being still before him. Tozer writes this, Let us say it again. God is here. The whole universe is alive with his life. And he is no strange or foreign God, but the familiar Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose love has for these thousands of years enfolded the sinful race of men. And always he is trying to get our attention, to reveal himself to us, to communicate with us. We can know him if we will but respond to his overtures. And this we call pursuing God. To pursue Jesus is to respond to him. To respond to his call that is not far off. To listen to his voice that whispers right in our ear. To grasp his outstretched arm which is right there before us. Well, as we come to consider this passage ourselves and what it means for us today, we might think that we're not distracted by the law as some in Israel were, and that's, that's mostly true. But there's still ways in which our walk with God is a continuing journey to trust not in our own efforts, but to lean on God's mercy. We still have this strange idea that a full and whole life can be achieved by our strivings and effort when God is the source of life. 
And the gospel reminds us again to find wholeness in Jesus, not in our efforts. So maybe we find ourselves feeling like Axel. Axel struggled with guilt. The guilt that came from wrestling with sin over and over again. Every moment of victory over addiction was matched with two moments of stumbling and failure. He tried time and time again to flee that addiction, but it always pursued him and it always caught up. He felt powerless before it. One day Axel decided that his own efforts were hopeless and in desperation he bowed down before God and prayed. Over the next few weeks, Axel spent more and more time in prayer, asking God for help. He kept struggling with his addictions time and time again, but Axel decided that his response to failure would be to turn back to God straight away and ask for his help. Over many months, years even, God did a work in Axel's life as he learnt to trust not in his own strength, but in the mercy and the presence of God. He still relapses from time to time, but he has a peace that he never had before and knows that God is taking him on a journey to make him more like Jesus. Or perhaps we find ourselves feeling like Iris, Iris has always had a real sense that, they, that her work as a health professional has been a way of honouring God and living out her faith. But lately, everything seems to have been going wrong. Iris has made some mistakes and she feels like she's been letting people down, like she's been letting God down. She feels like a failure. In response, she's doubled her efforts, spent hours drafting a strategic plan and documenting some plans for the future. She's written hundreds of emails to people to express her care for them, trying to make up for her mistakes. Iris finds herself wearier than ever, and rather than helping, her drivenness has only caused her to be less present with people. One weekend, Iris decides to stop and to go for a bushwalk and to rest for a moment. On her walk, as she prays and considers God's goodness, she's struck by how self-reliant she has become. She begins to intentionally carve out more space for rest, reflection and prayer. And she begins to see that productivity is not the same as faithfulness. She wonders if God is teaching her that there are things that are beyond her control and she can't be everything or do everything. Perhaps God, most of all, wants her to be present to him and to those around her. Can you relate to these stories? Times where you have spent so much time trying to solve your own problems that you've missed Jesus' voice speaking to you words of peace and assurance. Maybe there are areas of our lives right now where we are so reliant, so self-reliant and self-obsessed that we're missing Jesus' words of comfort 
as we work ourselves or worry ourselves into a blubbering mess. For Israel, the result of self-reliance was anxiety and oppression as people were pushed to the margins for not being good enough or filled with guilt and fear that they were unworthy of God. Self-reliance led to a lessening of life, an endless, frustrating pursuit. We see this in our church communities too when we try to force God's kingdom to grow by our own efforts. We might develop brilliant programs and neat fluid systems. We might have a fantastic strategy document and the church might be a hive of busyness. But what does that matter if we are not resting in Jesus and listening to his voice together and individually? What does it matter if we pursue creativity or events or busyness but don't pursue Christ? These things only take their rightful place when Jesus is our first love. The Gospel teaches us that Jesus is our everything. He's done for us what we could never do. And a life that is whole, a life that is at peace with God, is only possible by leaning upon him in trust. The, the gospel calls us to kneel before him and rest in his mercy. Only there will we find peace. I'd like to finish by reading a prayer. You might like to listen along and maybe echo these words as I pray. Lord, make me childlike. Deliver me from the urge to compete with another for place or prestige or position. I would be simple and artless as a little child. Deliver me from poise and pretense. Forgive me for thinking of myself. Help me to forget myself and find my true peace in beholding you. Teach me to throw myself upon your mercy time and time again. To pursue you and you alone. Amen.